This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and streaming free on iHeartRadio and iTunes. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a senior reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, senior editor at Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from PW's offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. March is Cookbook Month at PW, and on today's show, we're going to have a couple of different items talking about cookbooks. We have author Kathy Erway discussing her new cookbook, The Food of Taiwan, and also PW writer Leila Narji is going to discuss PW's recent cookbooks feature. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, which is powered by Nielsen BookScan. So before we get into the cookbook section of yes. the bestseller list, uh, just wanted to touch briefly on a couple of uh, pieces from the fiction hardcover bestseller list. Um, at number three, we have Clive Cussler's The Assassin. Uh, nobody is ever surprised to see Cussler's name on the bestseller list. He's a He's he's been up there um, mm. since I was reading his books uh, 25 years ago, probably. Um, and uh, this is the uneven eighth adventure featuring uh, Isaac Bell, a detective with the Van Dorn Agency in 1905. Uh, and Kessler co-authored this with Justin Scott, but uh, somehow even with two people working on the book, um, you know, we, we say it's still really not quite their best work. The PW Review says, an exciting trip to Russia and a whiz-bang ending compensate for the places where the action bogs down. Mm. So, so much for that. But, um, still, you know, plenty there for Kessler's fans. And, you know, once you get into a series like that, you're willing to follow it. Sure. Um, and uh, at number five, we have The Buried Giant by Kazuo Ishiguro. Uh, this has been getting a fair amount of press in my part of the world because uh, Ishiguro did uh, an interview that appeared in the New York Times uh, in February where he was talking about uh, concerns that his readers, who are mostly literary fiction readers, would struggle with this book, which has uh, fantastical elements. And he said, you know, will readers follow me into this? Will they understand what I'm trying to do? Or will they be prejudiced against the surface elements? Are they going to say this is fantasy? Mm. Uh, and Ursula Le Guin, who uh, is a staunch defender of fantastical literature, uh, wrote an op-ed of her own at the Bookview Cafe site saying, uh, you know, certainly they'll call it fantasy and why shouldn't they? Uh, and then Shiguro responded in The Guardian, uh, saying he is on the side of the, the pixies and dragons. Uh, and you know, he was he was concerned that uh, he and Le Guin had somehow ended up seeing each other on, on opposite sides of this issue when actually they both share a passion mm -hmm. for fantastical literature. And it seems to have been wrapped up. You know, literary feuds can go on for quite some time. <laughs> this is true. Backing and forthing and backing and forthing. But Le Guin took the opposite tack. She put another piece up on Bookview Cafe, um, a very handsome apology saying uh, she's sorry that uh, she was said anything that might have been hurtful. Um, she felt her response was perhaps too hasty. And uh, she wishes she hadn't flown off the handle. 
Uh, she hopes that the two of them will be able to sit down and have a good conversation about the elements of fantasy that they both enjoy. And there's a there's a little dig at the end saying that you know <laughs> lots of people picked up the news of a feud between these two major authors, and she says, "How many will pick up this one?" So I I did want to personally make a note of it at least in this venue sure. um, that uh, you know if, even even if perhaps blood was drawn, hopefully the two of them can now shake hands and settle down to mutually enjoying and respecting fantastical literature. And this wasn't the first author who she had she's. Uh, been engaged in a debate uh, with about no, she's uh, such fantastical uh, elements. At, at one point, Ishiguro said, "You know, I guess she sees me as the the next Margaret Atwood because right. um, Atwood has also said that what she writes isn't science fiction; it's speculative fiction, and right. um, you know, tried to draw very clear lines um, where there really is no clear boundary." Right. And and Le Guin has likewise, um, though she she notes that Atwood is a friend of hers. Um, she has also taken issue with some of those statements. I love that we have uh, you know. This wonderful, distinguished author in Le Guin, who's such a passionate defender yeah. of fantastical literature, of science fiction, fantasy, and um, and quite willing to say, you know, it's just as good as literary, but also, you know, the lines there are blurry. Right. Um, I think it's quite appropriate to call the buried giant literary fantasy or fantastical literature. Yeah. You know, it's um, the. There, there's there's a lot of overlap. And I, I think, I mean, certainly if the numbers are anything to go by, in the first week out, the book, The Buried Giant, sold uh, nearly 12,000 copies. Um, wow. And hopefully that's all to people who will appreciate it for what it is, yeah. rather than trying to get through it despite what it's not. Yeah, and one wonders uh, whether she, you know, an apology was was uh, was was needed. Well, that's debatable, but yeah. um, you know, I think there's a lot to be said for uh, the way she she couched it. She didn't say I was wrong to defend fantasy. What she said was, you know, maybe I responded right. too hastily, sure. yeah. and it seems like we're on the same side. And right. I I think I think that's a very graceful yeah. way to deal with what otherwise could have uh, escalated or escalated or just sort of settled into a long term bitterness right. um i'm i'm a big fan of yeah you know stepping up and going okay well you know maybe we don't need to be fighting right so yep. good, good for her and i hope that uh, he responds in kind yeah let's talk cookbooks yeah cookbook tell me subjects. tell me about cookbooks you've got some historical data in addition to to this week's yeah I, and, exactly well uh, before i i, I want to say the top three well, the top three debuts uh, look to be, uh, or three of the top debuts are cookbooks, food-related books, and they all have to do with uh, cookbooks related to diet, or at least maybe somewhat changing the tone of, of uh, maybe just like healthy cookbooks. So, The first one is the Shred Diet Cookbook, a uh, cookbook based on the Shred Diet by Ian K. Smith. That uh, debuts at number 16. Mm-hmm. And then Virginia Willis, who's known for her uh, Southern comfort food uh, recipes, has Come up with a lighten up, y'all. Classic Southern recipes made healthy and wholesome. So uh, she's she's taking a look at some of these great Southern uh, comfort food recipes and and has taken approach to them to make it lighter, to make it more wholesome. And this is up at number seventeen on our bestseller list. And um, it's all about paleo. Uh, number twenty nine. We're going to see. We've been seeing a lot of paleo books, mm. and uh, the end of last year, beginning of this year, we're going to continue to see some more. Uh, 
this is by Lauren uh, Cordain. She's a PhD. Uh, she's uh, uh, specializes in, in diet and uh, evolutionary medicine. Um, the Real Paleo Diet Cookbook is the title of this. 250 all-new recipes from the paleo expert. Um, so this is uh, at number 29. So, But what I'd like to talk a little bit about are the sales figures, uh, or at least the books, uh, the best-selling cookbooks uh, from uh, the beginning of the year to March 1st. They're all about two things. One is ease in the kitchen, Mm -hmm. making things quickly, simply. The other thing is, as we've witnessed by these last three cookbooks, health conscious, all about health, Mm -hmm. fast and easy and healthy. So topping the charts is uh, Ina Garden's book. And she seems to, whenever she has a cookbook coming out, that's going to be among, if not the top selling cookbook of the year. Uh, it's called Make It Ahead by Ina Garden. It came out in October. It's been selling a lot and been selling regularly. And, and I should also mention with these best-selling cookbooks that we've seen to date, you don't get a lot of the celebrity chefs. You get mostly health-conscious ones or diet ones or, or people who like Ina Garden, who's been cooking. I mean, she's her own celebrity now, but she wasn't always. Right. Uh, and and so, so, so she's always going to be pretty strong. The one that is not that is Thug Kitchen uh, by the folks at Thug Kitchen. This is one of the ones that was a blog. And it, uh, when it came out in October, uh, it became kind of controversial because they talk about Thug Kitchen, which is uh, kind of like bringing your own attitude to food. Uh, and turned out that they were uh, seemingly uh, very wholesome um, uh white couple from California. And so the whole <laughs> uh-huh. idea of thug or an urban kind of approach to kitchen was uh, something maybe not disingenuous, but maybe a little bit misleading. Uh, nonetheless, that book has settled, has sold quite a bit. And they're, they're, I mean, it, it's basically taking an approach to how you cook and just like kind of owning the kitchen. Um, and so let's talk a little bit more about, we've got uh, Gina Homolka's The Skinny Taste Cookbook. Um, Weight Watchers, uh, this is their fifth edition of the cookbook, which came out uh, in December, and that has been selling pretty steadily. Uh, and from Martha Stewart Living, uh, the editor of Martha Stewart Living is called Clean State. I'm sorry, Clean Slate, a cookbook and a guide. Um, and that has been also selling pretty well. Good Housekeeping, they're, they're ones that tend to appear on our bestseller list. And this one is 400 healthy recipes from the editors of Good Housekeeping. Slow Cooker. Slow cooking book cookbooks have been coming out, uh, getting, I think, bigger and bigger. There was a, uh, about three or four years ago, there was a slow cooker movement. And now so many recipes, you've got slow cooker Italian, Greek, I mean, so many different Hmm. books coming out for the slow cooker. And this is the Healthy Slow Cooker. Uh, it's called the Healthy Slow Cooker Revolution. And uh, going along the lines of, of, of pressurized cooking, we've got the Big Pressure Cooker by Bruce Weinstein and Mark Scarborough, uh, both well-known uh, cookbook writers. And this one, they've come out. This one was published in February. So this has just been just going strongly right out of the gates. And finally... Uh, by Diane Sanfilippo. Uh, we uh, talked about paleo. This is a book that came out in August of 2012. Uh, it's called Practical Paleo, and in its paperback form, it's ninth uh, on our list of uh, best-selling cookbooks from uh, January, February to March 1st. Wow. And that's what we have. 
our so cookbooks. It's really interesting to see a pressure cooker cookbook on there. I have a pressure cooker and I love it, but I feel um, like a real outlier. I, I think when you know, when I tell people I cook with a pressure cooker, they say, "Aren't you worried it's going to explode?" Right. You know, which is <laughs> you know that 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 concern is a couple of generations right. old right. now. Right. So um, that's great that there are so many people out there actually discovering and using pressure cookers. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and being brought being kind of brought to people's attentions by Weinstein and Scarborough as well. Great. So are you afraid of it? I'm not afraid of it. No, I I love it. I had an electric pressure cooker for a long time and it finally bit the dust, alas. And um, so I, I, they don't make that model anymore. So I replaced it with a stovetop one. Um, and it's great. I made Ropa Vieja in it the other was, day, and it was delicious. I was just going to ask for a sample uh, uh, recipe from you. So, um, you know, don't don't hate me for this. Your your Italian ancestors will scream in rage. I make risotto in the pressure cooker. You know what? If it turns out fine, <laughs> I'd say go for it. It's risotto, yeah. it's risotto without any stirring, if you can oh. believe it. You just put stuff in, and and, uh, and it works. How wonderful would that be? So it's, uh, it's pretty excellent. Excellent. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, Kathy Airway tells us about the numerous cultures that have influenced Taiwanese cuisine. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Ilyasa Shabazz, author of X, a novel, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Welcome back. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Kathy Irway on the line. Her new book is The Food of Taiwan. Hi, Kathy. So glad you could join us. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So this is your second book, following the memoir, The Art of Eating In. So why pick Taiwan for a cookbook? Well, I've always been fascinated by Taiwanese cuisine. Um, it's where Taiwan is where my mother was born and raised, and much of the food that I ate growing up was owing to her homeland. Um, I never, I never really thought of it as a distinct cuisine outside of um, Chinese cuisine, which is such a vast, you know, cuisine, and there's so many regional um, specialties. But um, it just the reason for that was just that it doesn't seem to exist as, um, you know, in literature, um, there wasn't really a category. Certainly, there weren't any cookbooks that I found in the English language um, or published in the U.S. that focused on Taiwanese food. And, you know, as I became, um, you know, interested in food writing and I started writing articles and books, it still seemed like a sort of barren um you know, and a great opportunity um, to kind of study more. So what kind of research do you do for a book like this? Um, Did you travel to Taiwan? Did you consult with cooks who were there? Yeah, I did. So, um, you know, I've been to Taiwan a couple times. I actually also spent a semester abroad in Taipei in uh, college, and that really opened my eyes to the amazing foods there and gave me a great primer for a lot of the um, dishes that I wanted to explore deeper. But for this book, I took two extended trips throughout Taiwan where I set, uh, where I traveled, you know, from, you know, the whole course of the island and um, really tried to hone in on what would be the ultimate collection of recipes. Um, and also taking photographs along the way, meeting chefs, but also just average people like moms and grandmas and talking to them about um, the distinct dishes that they were making. 
So it's a lot of fun. <laughs> for for an ignorant American like me, I failed geography. Um, I'm just going to state that up front. So I know that Taiwan's an island, but I don't have a sense of how big it is. Um, what what kind of scale are we talking about? It's a pretty small island. So just to help you out geographically, um, Taiwan is situated just below the Japanese archipelago, and uh, it's also above the Philippines. But the size of Taiwan is pretty small. Um, there's about 22 million people, but the scope of Taiwan is about the size of Massachusetts, I hear, um, in physical size. Wow. But it's situated there. It must just get this great cross-section of mm -hmm. influences and cuisines. It definitely has, yeah. I mean, the, the, I love to geek out about this in the history section of the book, but um, you get this interesting cross-section not only because of the different uh, societies that have that have made it what it is today, but also the the, the subtropical climate is really different from much of you know Japan, much of China, and um, yeah, it's it's very it's lush, you know, it's very full of natural resources. So I, I enjoy a cookbook that combines recipes with cultural history, as does yours. I mean, you do that well with the book. I mean, you, the first, I think, 40, 50 pages are a, uh, a history of Taiwan. Uh, tell us a little bit about that history culturally, and then we'll go on to talk about the food in just a second. Oh, sure. I mean, so much of the cultural history is what makes the food what it is today. So um, I'm glad that you appreciate that part of it. Um, but, you know, in a nutshell, Taiwan has um, aboriginal populations that have been there for centuries I and mean, thousands of years, actually. And, you know, from right across the Taiwan Strait in China, there's Fujian province. And so many of the earliest uh, settlers in Taiwan were from that region. It's a southern Taiwanese, it's a southern Chinese uh, region. Um, throughout the years, you see groups like the Hakka, um, who were dispersed throughout China due to oppression, um, and were once thought to be a distinct ethnicity, um, but are now recognized as more or less Han Chinese people, but with their own language and customs. They have, over the centuries, um, continued to migrate to Taiwan. And then we have a turning point where Taiwan was ceded to the Japanese um, after they lost a war at the end of the 1800s. So you have 50 years where Japan occupied and ruled Taiwan. And so much of that influence is still there. Then another dramatic change of pace for this little island. Um, we had the ROC, or Republic of China, retreating from the communists at the, um, at the end of the 1940s. So that whole group of migration from Chiang Kai-shek's army of the Republic of China, who settled in Taiwan, would make up a great amount of its population. Those people came from all over China, and that happened to include my grandparents, too. Wow. So is there... Um can there be such a thing as like a single recipe that characterizes Taiwan or is the, the cuisine just too diverse? I think so, because I think that when people think of Taiwanese cuisine, they're really talking about the people who were in Taiwan before the end of the 1800s, so before the turn of the century when Japan took over. Um, there, you know, this was already established um, they had already established a culture um, as a group on the island. So when we think of old-fashioned Taiwanese food, we think of food that is from that period. Mm -hmm. 
So give us some examples of, of some older traditional Taiwanese food from that period and, and maybe how it's changed now. Sure. So we have um, one of the classic dishes is a rustic uh, noodle soup called danzai noodle soup. And it refers to um, a wooden pole that fishermen would carry around their backs or on the tops of their shoulders. Um, it's also a dish called slack season noodle. So basically fishermen during the off season for catching whatever their catch was, would sell noodles on the side. Um, and then this is a very simple noodle dish, but it, it, it encompasses a lot of um, what Taiwanese food uh, favorites are. So there's a minced uh, pork meat sauce that is sort of drizzled atop, atop the noodle soup. And um, it's absolutely delicious. So that would be a classic. That would be a classic dish. Great. What and you know, it sounds very similar to some uh, Italian dishes that the uh, <laughs> mariners would make, also with noodles, but with the catch that they brought in. Uh, yeah. So it's uh, it's it's great to hear that too. But uh, so tell us, uh, maybe give us a couple more examples of 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 recipes of foods that mm-hmm. have come about from the the various. Uh, uh, from from the various people of, of Taiwan. Oh, right, of course, yes. Yeah. So you asked about how they've changed over the years. Um, so I think a great example of the changing not only fashions but influences um, in Taiwan is its beef noodle soup. Um, to back up a little bit, Taiwan mostly grows rice, not wheat. Um, it is too warm for wheat growing. So most of the noodles were rice noodles. Mm. Um, and even like buns or dumpling type of dishes like the bawan, um, a, a very popular dumpling-like snack in Taiwan is actually made with like a glutinous rice flour starch-based uh, skin instead of wheat. So after the mainland um, mass arrival in the end of the 40s, um, we see a lot more wheat being used and wheat-based noodles and buns and more northern specialties like, you know, scallion pancakes, for instance, which was made with wheat. Um, but a really cool example is um, beef noodle soup that was made in Taiwan, and it was believed it was made um, in the military villages that were um, set up to house members of the military's families, um, when they had just moved over to Taiwan. So in these villages, you had a mingling of all different uh, mainland Chinese cultures. So somebody next door to somebody might be from, um, you know, Beijing, and somebody else is from Shanghai, and somebody's from Sichuan, and so forth. So you really see that in the Taiwanese beef noodle soup. It has spicy, um, you know, Sichuan peppercorns and chili bean sauce, which is from Sichuan province. It uses wheat-based noodles from the north, and it's all cooked in a a heavy, very intense, intensely flavored beef stock. So you don't even find this dish anywhere in China, certainly not Sichuan province, where it would have, like, the most conspicuous... uh, hints of. So it's a really unique, it's a real Taiwanese-made invention, and I think it's a source of pride. Wow, that sounds fascinating. And when you say there's you know, not a lot of wheat grown there, I'm, I'm also guessing you don't see a lot of cows, so the, the beef itself was probably also imported. Yeah, today, I mean, they import a lot of beef. I mean, they're pretty global, you know, societies, so um, they, they've, they grow some 
um, livestock, but just, you know, looking at the size of Taiwan and how much of it is covered in jungle and forest, there's not a whole lot of room for grazing. Right. That makes perfect yeah. sense. Um, and, and what about the vegetables? Do you see like a, a similar diversity of vegetables that are being grown there, being imported, uh, or does that tend to stay more local? Oh, they tend to export those things because they grow some really, really great fruits and vegetables. And also tea. Tea is a specialty mm. in Taiwan. So they grow really distinctive, world-renowned teas. But, you know, the fruits and vegetables love the climate of Taiwan, and particular ones that need tons of sun, um, you know, like melons and so forth. They grow all kinds of squashes and summer squashes, that is, and melons. Um, and they're just, they're, they taste like a night and day difference, too, when you taste a watermelon or honeydew in Taiwan compared to even like the best at peak ones around here. Um, they eat a lot of it, too. I, I had a, a similar experience. Once you've had a mango in Singapore, you've just, yeah, that's it. <laughs> it's not, it's not like having a mango anywhere else. It's totally amplified, right? In mm -hmm. flavor. Yeah. Just that something about that tropical climate, uh, it makes such a difference. So there, are there a lot of vegetarian dishes? I, um, uh, I haven't gotten a chance to read all the way through your cookbook, sure. so I don't know how many I mean, you've you included. I think, I mean, Taiwan is pretty cool because it has preserved its ancient religions in a way that modern China sort of didn't as well, thanks to the communist revolution. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, there's a deeply ingrained sense of Taoism and Buddhism and a sense of yin and yang and balance and eating plenty of vegetables. And that's seen in, you know, family banquets or just the family dinners. Um, but I think that even though there are plenty of Buddhists who are very strict or monks who eat vegetarian. Today's youngsters are um, a little bit adventurous eaters. And, uh, you know, today's, you know, Taiwanese, the average Taiwanese is a total foodie. So they're, they're ready to eat everything rather than limit their diets to one, you know, vegetarian corner. Well, and speaking of limiting, how was it that you selected or, or limited the recipes in your book? And, and what was the process of organizing them? I, I know when, when you make a cookbook, when you write a cookbook, it's all in the organization and how you present the material. Right. So, you know, I just wanted to, as I was traveling throughout Taiwan, I kept looking for, for signs of interesting food that I might not be aware of yet. So I went to small little towns, farms, and so forth, and uh, tried to find those like really famous but little-known dishes of Taiwan. Um, to whatever success I may have done, I can't wait to hear people chime in on the conversation and broaden our knowledge of Taiwanese food more. Um, I would really love to hear more of those. But, um, you know, I tried my best to gather as many as I could. And then once I had a good deal of recipes to the, that I was thinking about, um, I threw a series of dinner parties where I cooked my way through a lot of the recipes to test out, you know, portions and so forth. And I had everybody give feedback and, and tell me what they loved and what they hated. And that was a lot of fun. So um, tell us also about the photography in the book, because uh, there are photographs of Taiwan and also some gorgeous photographs of the food. Oh, thank you. Um, so, you know, I had um, once, you know, I had um, 
a preference for photographers. I wanted to work with an old buddy of mine from college who happens to be Taiwanese American too, just because, you know, I I thought that would be so great. Um, he had never worked on a cookbook really before. So as soon as I got the clearance and I, I found out from my publisher that it was okay, I could have him shoot the cookbook, I knew it was going to look unlike most cookbooks that we see today. There was going to be a lot of sort of documentary style photographs of people um, making things and doing things and just in their natural settings. And um, it was going to have that, that real, real life feel rather than a lot of staged food. So, yeah, we tried to strike a balance, too, and shoot a lot of, you know, elegantly plated food um, for the recipes. But I think the majority of the photos, if you flip through, are, are people and places. We're going to take a quick break, but don't go away. Book lovers everywhere love Publishers Weekly Radio, now on iHeartRadio.com. PW Radio brings you the best of books and book publishing news. PW editors Rose Fox and Mark Rotella offer lively interviews with your favorite authors and conversations with new authors you'll want to get to know. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. Join the community of book lovers at PW Radio. Every Friday and now on demand at iHeartRadio.com. Welcome back. We're talking with Kathy Erway, who's the author of The Food of Taiwan. So, Kathy, tell us about your blog, The Art of Eating In. Um, this, so, is this basically just a way to stop spending money on eating out? Yeah, I mean, I started the blog way back in 2006, and um, from 2006 to 2008, I decided to not go to restaurants and see see what would happen, see how long that would last, and see if it was possible to live um, and work, you know, nine to five in the city while making food for myself from scratch most of the time. Um, and I, I think that, you know, there's, you know, there's a lot to, there's a lot that I came out of the project thinking about that I wouldn't have thought about to begin with. Um, so I kept up the blog and, you know, I wrote a memoir about it called The Art of Eating In that really highlights some of those discoveries. Um, how did how did that memoir come about? Were you approached by an editor, or did you decide that that was something you wanted to do as your next step? Yeah, no. I mean, I was approached pretty early on by an agent who liked the idea of my blog, but at the time, my blog wasn't like, I guess, very. It wasn't very cohesive or formula. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't much of anything at that time. I was just sort of posting dabblings here about food, a recipe here, there. So when the agent confronted me, I really didn't have an idea for a book yet, but a year later, I did. So I really worked on it for a while and um, decided that, you know, there was an arc to this story and I wanted to explore it more and dig into the topics around, you know, urban agriculture and um, foraging and, you know, wasted food and all these other topics that were around the idea of not eating out. Well, let's talk a little bit more about arcs, and let's talk about the arc of your own personal narrative. Uh, you say you've written on your on your blog. You grew up in a multicultural household in New Jersey, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, uh, how has this influenced what you cook, uh, but also what you eat and how you uh, uh, entertain dinner parties? Oh, thanks. Um, so I, you know, I really feel like I owe a lot of my food studies to growing up um, with with parents who enjoyed cooking. Um, 
they they really took an interest in international foods. Of course, my mom is Chinese and my my father is American, so we were kind of a our, within our house. We were international as well. So, um, you know, I I really owe the world to them for introducing me to foods very early on and getting me excited about cooking. And um, you know, I I think that that laid the the foundation for my missing cooking um, as I was you know after I'd grown up and, you know, was living on my own and I felt like going to restaurants was the norm and cooking was kind of like social taboo almost. <laughs> or it wasn't seen as like the thing to do if you're a foodie or if you're interested in food. It was like, no, you follow these trends of restaurants, you where that hot chef is cooking next and so forth. So so that led me to to my first book and blog about rediscovering home cooking and seeing seeing how that would fly in an unlikely setting, I guess, for it. And, um, you know, from there, it just made me realize that there's, there's just so much story to tell about Taiwanese food. It doesn't even have to do with my family in particular. It's, yes, it's where my mom is from, but it's, there's a whole story out there on its own that is just waiting to be told. So, of course, I was inspired by by my family, but also by Taiwan. So when you're in Taiwan, what's the food and cooking culture like there? And as you say, you know, again, big American cities, there's this whole eating out culture. In in Taiwan, is it more, uh, are there restaurants? Are there people mostly cooking at home? Are there big dinner parties, small gatherings? Wow, it's such a dramatic um, highs and lows of both, I think. I mean, right now, night markets are all the rage and uh, this is basically a street fair that happens every single night um, in so many neighborhoods throughout uh, the cities of Taiwan. So a night market will have different food vendors all trying to outdo one another with like the coolest, most interesting or tastiest dumplings or what have you that they're peddling. Um, And that's where that's where young people go to socialize and hang out, kind of like the mall Mm -hmm. um, that we have here. And then on the other hand, you have a deeply ingrained culture of like family banquets and um, sitting down at the table for, for holidays, religious observances like New Year's and so forth. So there's a bit of both. Well, so let's talk about these these street snacks, these street foods. I mean, you have a, a chapter on appetizers and street mm-hmm. snacks. Uh, tell us, give us a description. What does the what do the booths look like? Are they cooked out on an open uh, uh, open flame? So, give us a give us a little walking tour of this and what we might see. Oh, uh, okay. So it's very crowded. You walk into. Um, a very busy night market. Let's say it's Shida Night Market in Taipei. It's a very iconic one. Um, there's there's lights, you know, fluorescent lights from some of the awnings or some of the stands that are serving, um, I don't know, crispy crispy dumplings of some sort. Maybe it's a scallion pancake that is served up with sauce. Maybe it's a soup peddler scooping up um, various different Wei braised foods that you can kind of choose. It's sort of like a hot pot um, that you can choose whichever items you'd like to plop into it. Um, And then um, you have clothing vendors selling the latest fashions, um, electronics vendors. Um, There's little games like, like I can't describe the names of some of these games, but sort of like, you know, mechanical arcade games sometimes available for the younger kids to 
play in. And, um, yeah, it's a little bit like like a street fair or carnival um, that you might see maybe once a year in most places, except it happens every single night in these places. So it sounds like um, it, it could be its own temptation to eat out every night, to just go to the night market every night and see what's there today. I think people do, but I think that people go there um, – just as a way of hanging out, too, um, whether it's grabbing a few bites or just or grabbing several different bites for dinner, um, it's definitely a destination to go for just socializing. So on the social cooking front, the social eating front, you co-founded the Hapa Kitchen Supper Club. Uh, according to your website, it creates local and seasonal food inspired by its members' half-Asian heritage. So where yeah. did that idea come from? Well, um, me and a few other folks uh, decided that, you know, we were just talking so much about cool fusions that we ate growing up that we didn't think of it as cool, you know, like white bread with Chinese roast pork between, you know, it's kind of <laughs> like accidental Asian fusion mm-hmm. <laughs> that we remembered from our youth. And we wanted to play up on this theme, but in a, a sort of smart um hopefully more refined way, but still inventive and playful. So we would come up with these dream menus. And then one day we realized, you know, let's just do it. Let's like create a dinner party. And then a series was formed from that. And so we had, you know, pop-up dinners here and there. Um, So we were a supper club and it was tons of fun. Give us a little sample menu of one of these, at one of these dinners. Okay. So one, one of the themes was um, Paris of the East, which is what Shanghai was called um, back in the day, of like the 20s and so forth. Um, so we made a duck dinner focusing on local, local duck from Hudson Valley Duck Farm. And uh, we partnered with Sang Lee Farms, which is in Long Island, and they make organic, uh, they grow organic vegetables. Um, and uh, we created a dinner around this theme. Um, we had like duck that was uh, made with like an orange and butter sauce, similar to both like the Chinese American sweet and sour sort of duck sauce, quote mm-hmm. unquote, as well as duck a l'orange. So it was a fun little play on both of them. Wow, that sounds like so much fun. So um, since you were so influenced by your parents cooking, I have to ask, do they cook from your cookbook? Oh, gosh. Um, <laughs> gee. You know, I think my mom has never used any cookbooks, really, mm-hmm. growing up. And I tend to also be a little bit more, um, I guess, spontaneous when it comes to grabbing ingredients. I like to read cookbooks for inspiration, but then when it comes down to it, I'll just kind of make a variation of a recipe. So I think that um, at least my mom is the same way. And I believe my dad is a little bit more studious and follows a recipe to the T. And he has made some of my recipes, both on my blog and from my first book. So I'll be excited to see if he if he uh, takes on some, some of my new book's recipes. So can you... Uh... For those of us who may want to plan a uh, Taiwanese dinner party for friends, mm-hmm. say uh, a group of four or six, uh, what, what would you recommend from your cookbook? Mm-hmm. Okay, so, uh, you know, hopefully it'll be helpful that the cookbook is organized by course type. Yes, right. So I would say pick a couple of the appetizers or snacks. Um, for example, uh, maybe a dumpling um, or 
a pair, a duo of dumplings, but the crispy Gautiers, a Taiwanese brand of potstickers, is pretty hard to beat, especially if, I mean, they're just such a crowd pleaser. Great. And then I would move on and choose a couple of the vegetable courses, any two, any distant, you know, two different ones that you like. And then, um, you know, one chicken course, say like the three cup chicken, one meat course, say maybe like a red braised, uh, pork belly or something kind of richer and then to balance maybe a more clean tasting uh, fish or seafood dish perhaps the pan fried seared very simple fish with uh, scallions and ginger would be a great touch wow i'm getting hungry (laughs) so um what's what's your next project now that this is out in the world Great question. Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what the next direction is, and I've, you know, I, I really enjoy the writing and the history parts, um, as you mentioned, which seems to take up most of the narrative of the book, aside from the recipe. So, you know, I'm I'm leaning towards that direction with with ideas. I'm not quite sure where they're going just yet. <laughs> and and do you have any sense of this sparking more interest in the food of Taiwan? You mentioned that there was a real lack of cookbooks mm-hmm. in English. Um, is there uh, maybe some hope that we could get more cookbooks about Taiwanese yeah. food or maybe some translations? I mean, that is ultimately the my goal with this cookbook is to spark an awareness, but also a study of, of, and a conversation about Taiwanese food. And I, I understand like, you know, taking on this large authoritative sounding cookbook where it's supposed to be a comprehensive, you know, tome on the whole cuisine might seem a little bit uh, presumptuous, but that's totally not what I'm hoping to do. I, I just hope that this will only be the beginning. You know, we're only just scratching the tip of the iceberg here with this book, and we'll see many more um, dialogues about about Taiwanese food to come. So each culture has its own form of comfort food. What might be the ultimate comfort food for Taiwanese? Oh, gosh. I think it might be a sweet potato kanji that's as simple and basic as it sounds. It's chunks of sweet potatoes and uh, cooked into a porridge of rice. <laughs> and wow. um, it is such a comfort food because you'll see it even on like fancy restaurant menus. But at you know, in its heyday, it was really just a way to keep farmers um, nourished for a long day in the field. And sweet potatoes are just just a lot more nutritious than just plain old rice. When when meat is scarce, um, you know, this was a filling bowl. So, I mean, it has it has that comfort, um, you know, nostalgia attached to it. And um, when you think about the harder times that our forebears had, it's just it gives you that ultimate comfort. We've been talking with Kathy Irway, and you can find her book, The Food of Taiwan, in stores right now. Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW writer Layla Narji tells us how kitchen gadgets might be changing the future of cookbooks, so stay tuned. I'm Kevin Sessoms, author of I Left It on the Mountain, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. 
Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. And you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from Publishers Weekly editors and contributors. And today, PW writer Layla Narji is here to tell us all about PW's recent cookbooks feature. Hi, Layla. Hi, how are you? Doing very well. Thanks for coming on the show. Um, My so tell us a little bit about um, technology and cookbooks. Well, we went into this asking a question, and the question was, is technology affecting what's happening with cookbooks? And so that was what we were really trying to find out. And um, I talked to, I don't know, maybe 12 publishers and and various editors at at, at houses to, to answer just that question. And the answer was, it was different for for almost everybody. So that was interesting. Although there were some there were some um, some generalities that were that were common from house to house. So give us a sense of what those generalities were. Over and over again, and I don't know if I was surprised by this or not. Um, I heard that what people want and what editors want to be putting out are actual physical copies of books. That there's still, especially in the cookbook realm, a huge desire to see the printed object. Okay, um, and how how is that sort of interplaying with what people were expecting? Has there been an emphasis on digital cookbooks that isn't borne out by the market? I think for some people, yes, and for some editors, no. It was it was interestingly varied. Some editors um, had sort of uh, dipped their toe in in the whole realm of technology and decided, you know what, um, just sort of not worth the time and the effort and the money. You know, resources are are scarce for a lot of a lot of publishers, and so to do these things often in house means having to devote uh, devote people who were there to to that and they might not have the time for it, or, you know, it can be pretty costly to, to do an app, something like $40,000 in, in that realm. Um, so they were deciding whether or not it was, was worth the effort. And for some of them, you know, as Rex Martin said at Rex Martin Books, it was an interesting experiment for her. She tried it and sort of decided, you know what, it, it, that wasn't really working for me. Others were sort of thinking about it in terms of, well, you know, we're going to roll these things out simultaneously. Um, some editors had felt that there was um, a sort of slightly different demographic that was interested in ebooks, uh, maybe younger. Some people had sort of indicated that younger people who are interested in cooking, and you know, a lot of the farm to table enthusiasts, a lot of recent college graduates, were younger and had less money and might be less. Um, able to afford to buy something in the digital and the um, something in, in print, and so might gravitate toward um, digital uh, for reasons of finance, mm. but still in the end might actually like the printed book if they had the money for it. Yeah, I know this has been an art, a, a discussion that the uh, that has been happening in the cookbook publishing world for for a few years now, uh, and and I've often felt. Uh, and it's also been discussed that that children's books and and cookbooks are very similar in that they're photo heavy, they're graphic. People like to hold on to them as you know, as an actual object. Uh, and and as you'd mentioned, the cost of creating you said creating an app is expensive, but so is the cost of creating its own ebook. I mean, you really have to design an ebook separately from a book or any any whether it's a cookbook or not. So, yeah, exactly. So it almost doesn't seem to be many have felt it wasn't cost effective. 
But there are some, and and one that, uh, like the Mario Batali's uh, new cookbook that Grand Central published, where it's kind of an enhanced ebook. Uh, tell us a little bit about that as an example. Well, the interesting thing about the Batali book was um, one thing that kept coming up over and over again um, was the importance of having the right platform for enhanced or even an app. And so, you know, Mario Batali, obviously somebody who has a huge following on social media, TV shows, the whole works, is so well known. And so um, for his editor, it was perhaps less of a, it was more of a no-brainer to go with him and for an enhanced because the sort of, the market was sort of built in. He has such a huge following, such a, such a, an easy way to reach that following um, that they felt that they could, could really make a run for it and make a go for it. Also, the other thing was that in addition to him being a celebrity chef and having all these followers was that it was an interesting concept. It was a concept that allowed them to explore something that's very much in the air now with, you know, the food market sort of generally, which is farm to table. So with that, um, with that important and interesting concept behind the book, they felt that it was really worth their while to, to pursue that. And so now it's been out for a couple of months. Uh, do you have a, an idea as to how well that ebook has done? Was there I do not. Yeah. And it's very rare that anybody ever wants to share figures with me, sadly. Sure. Yeah. It's the question we always ask and the question that we often do not have answered. Um, but, you know, you also mentioned... Um, um, photo heavy, and this is very. This is something that lent itself, I think, really well to to photography. Um, also, another expense that comes up for a lot of these books. Um, so, uh, something that Rux Martin was talking to me about, and some other editors were mentioning as well, was that um, that there's so many of these bloggers, and for Rux Martin, it was Mong Chi, who's a Korean a Korean cook who has a has an upcoming cookbook. Um, they can take their own photographs. They're really professional, quality photographs, and they can have, you know, um, one photo per recipe, which used to be something that was reviled as an idea in cookbooks. You know, a serious cookbook was meant to have no no pictures whatsoever. But there is this sort of, I don't know, it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. Do people want more photographs because they're seeing them on, on blogs? Or, you know, how is that working? But there does seem to be more of a, a sense that, uh, photos are something that people want to see both in in the tech and in the actual printed copies of the cookbooks. Now, I was going to ask you about the Mangchi cookbook because I was wondering whether that's at all been an outlier in the question of uh, reaching the younger demographic being more popular in digital because um, she's got such a popular YouTube channel. She's already really a digital celebrity. Does that affect the way the, the cookbook is sold? I would think that it would. I think that's the implication. But she's also interesting, too, and it'll be, uh, we'll see when when it all comes out, when it all hits. I mean, the other thing, too, is that Korean cooking is really hot right now. Um, it's not a niche, you know, a niche cuisine. It's still very much, you know, it's like a big, big culture cuisine that's that's out there. But um, nobody's done much with it in terms of cookbooks, so I think that's also hitting hitting an audience that would really like to be cooking Korean food at home too, which has not been something um, that was really possible unless you had a Korean mother or grandmother. 
So when I do a lot of cooking, um, I take my laptop into the kitchen because I'm often cooking from blog recipes. Uh, my husband brings in his iPad so he can pull up Cooks Illustrated. Uh, so for me, I, I guess I'm not quite seeing the difference between cooking from a blog recipe online uh, and cooking from a digital cookbook. And yet it sounds like people are really treating them very differently. You know, that's an interesting point, and it might just be, and that's a question that I didn't ask, but it's worth thinking about. It might be that people like to have everything with an index readily mm. available, you know, in a format that you're used to used to thinking about and used to dealing with. Um, also, the Munchie is going to be, it's going to be an actual cookbook as well, and I think it might just be feeding that market as well, you know. It's, it's also a lifestyle thing. I think that cookbooks are very much tied up in lifestyle. Yes. Um, both for an older and a younger generation, and it might be a little bit different in terms of how they determine, um, think about lifestyle. But, you know, I'll sit down with a cookbook and read it from cover to cover, and so there is something about having that physical object that ties in very neatly with, you know, even travel or imagining, you know, other things about your life, not just actually making a meal in the kitchen. Um, and that might be part of the appeal as well. But in terms of um, having the digital cookbook, you know, well, you know, for something like an app, too, if we can backtrack to that, you know, having it on your phone makes it really simple to go into into a supermarket. You've got it right there already in mm -hmm. your phone, and you don't have to drag your laptop, or you don't have to print something out from your laptop. Um, some of the enhanced cookbooks have, um, enhanced e-books have, um, shopping list that you can that you can send to yourself so you've got that handy or you can send it to you know your spouse so he or she can can deal with that on the way home so there are other things that are happening that you know that we're sort of taking for granted um in other aspects of our lives and other areas of our lives that maybe are making our lives easier when it comes to cooking too and, and when we're busy and working and doing other things but still need to think about coming home and making a meal and and as you were you were going back to the the original question of the uh, of the piece, and we're talking about gadgets. And I know um, at various cookbook conferences, and you mentioned this in your piece as well, that you know in the not so distant future there will be a refrigerator that will be communicating with our computer or our uh, cell phone to say that when uh, something is missing from the refrigerator or when we need to get more bread. And that might just go right into your cell phone. And as you pick up a uh, tap onto a recipe, uh, it'll register that, oh, wait, you have no milk for that. <laughs> Right. And actually, that was a point that was made by Harvard Common Press, which is actually starting to move away from publishing cookbooks. Mm -hmm. So they're still publishing cookbooks, but they're sort of trying to reinterpret um, how they exist in the food space sort of generally and seeing it much broader. But yeah, that was, I don't know whether to be terrified or delighted by the idea of a refrigerator that will do my shopping, ordering, my, you know, compiling my lists for me. Um, but his point was sort of... Um, that in all these other areas of our lives, you know, we can, you know, pick up the phone and use it as sort of a remote control for our life. You can order, you know, an Uber car. You can, you know, do all these other things. You have Netflix. You have all these other things that you can do electronically and digitally. Um, it's coming to the kitchen, too. And um, well, it'll be interesting to see how that pans out. It'll be interesting to see... Um, you know, what that will actually mean in the future and what that will mean for, for cookbooks. I suspect it's a question being asked sort of intellectually, but 
um, I don't know, sort of the conclusion I came to in writing this piece is that we're probably still always going to come back in some way, shape, or form to a printed book. Well, I, I will say that the refrigerator that catalogs its own contents and tells you what you're missing is something that's been rumored or, depending on your perspective, threatened for <laughs> decades. Uh, so it, it's actually really interesting to me that that's still coming up and it's still being touted as like the hot new thing, because I can't tell you how long I've been hearing that that's just around the corner. And somehow it seems to never really happen or never really integrate with people's lives. And I, I feel the same way about like the you know, beautiful bamboo wood iPod stand for the kitchen or, or whatever. I'd rather have a splash guard. Uh, you know, there, there's not, there's not quite a sense that uh, these, these items that are meant to digitally integrate the kitchen and really know how people are using digital objects now or how they might use them in everyday lives uh, when they're cooking or shopping. Right. And that also begs the question, are we of a generation that just knows how to do things one way, you know, we're the Luddites of the group? Um, and, you know, my 11-year-old daughter, will she be using the digital kitchen? But I don't know. She's got books, too. I feel like um, it's, it's an interesting question, and I don't know what's gonna, what it's going to take to actually make that make that change of mind come come about. But, you know, there's possibly room for all of these ideas. Uh, I think that might be sort of like the this sort of unspoken uh, theme of, of what was fleshed out here, too. Because we've got the modernist cuisine folks, too, you know, mm -hmm. who have their own, their own revenue stream, who can do everything in-house, who are really approaching all these, you know, cookbooks and, um, and e-books and apps and all of these things. Um, as things that they can just explore and have fun with. So I don't know, maybe it'll be a small group of people who has the, the self-ordering refrigerator at some point, and the rest of us will still be, you know, writing things down by hand on a scrap of paper. Well, I think the hybrid reader is um, the figure that keeps coming up in, in pretty much every sector. Uh, you know, people who read print books and digital books. I, I, don't, I don't think you need to worry that your 11-year-old is going to forget how to turn a page. I don't think so either. And the hybrid thing came up a bit, too. You know, um, there are people who want to have the object to curl up with in bed. And, you know, the, the, the Luddite crack notwithstanding, you know, uh, you know, even at my age, I do go online to look for, you know, I don't have a cookbook that covers every single recipe that I'd like to make on any given night. So I go online, too, just because, you know, I'm in my 40s doesn't mean I don't know how to use the computer to look up a recipe. And I do it often, more often than... Um, I probably realize. So I have a hybrid existence too, and I think most of us most of us do in some way, shape, or form. So these things are not mutually exclusive. Well, maybe we should have you back on the show in you know another couple of years to see how things are changing because it's obviously a very rapidly evolving end of the book marketplace. Or even yes, six months. Yeah, a couple of months. <laughs> right. We'll see. We'll see if that refrigerator comes to right. comes to bear. Yeah, Rose, you get it first. Uh, I'll, I'll, <laughs> all right, I'll I'll uh, I'll take that. Thank you very much, Layla. It's great to have you on the show. Thanks. Thanks for having me. And now a final word from our sponsors. Hi, my name is Joshua Davis. I'm the author of Spare Parts, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. And that's it for today's show. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. Join us next week for an interview with Kabir Sagal, author of Coined. We'll also have lots more juicy insider info on best-selling books and the nuts and bolts of publishing. 
In the meantime, you can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and also on iHeartRadio and iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. So check the site every week for a brand new episode giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 